beginning, I'd like to just kind of get some of the announcements and updates uh, out of the way. Um, first of all, again, a huge thank you to uh, Pastor Matt and to you guys for letting us uh, come. But let me give you an update about three things, uh, Not by Works Ministries, Cornerstone Bible Institute, and then uh, give a shout out to our church in, uh, in Denver called Plum Creek Chapel, actually in Sedalia. So if you're ever in the Denver area... Uh, over a weekend, come see us. Uh, you can find out more about us at PlumCreekChapel.org, uh, uh, but not by work. So since we were last year, last year been very busy. We've got two new books and a brand new uh, DVD series. So I want to mention those to you real quickly. The newest book, which is really in keeping with our theme for this conference, is called Top Ten Reasons Some People Go to Hell and the One Reason No One Ever Has to. And uh, this is the culmination of about five years of uh, kind of study and contemplation and thinking about why in the world would anybody reject the free gift of eternal life? <laughs> you know, it's the greatest need, it's the most valuable gift you could ever get, and yet we see people say no. We see people reject uh, the call of salvation. Why? And so I put together in here 10 uh, chapters, I call it the top 10 reasons where I deal with what it is that the devil might be using to blind men's hearts to the gospel. And so very much a book about the doctrine of salvation and grace that we're going to be talking about this weekend. The second book that has come out since we were last here is a devotional book. It's called Weekly Words of Life, 52 Devotionals to Warm Your Heart and Strengthen Your Faith. And the idea is each devotional is just you know one or two pages. Uh, you, you can easily read it in three or four minutes. But the idea is you read one devotional a week and read it again every day. And it's got a corresponding passage of Scripture. And just sort of meditate on it, think about it, let the Lord encourage you uh, through it. Uh, so that's Weekly Words of Life. Those are back there at the table. And then uh, right hot off the press just a few weeks ago is a new DVD set, 10 discs, 18 videos, over 14 hours of video called Spirit of the Antichrist, The Gathering Cloud of Deception. If I recall, when I was here two years ago, the theme was end times. We talked a lot about um, the rapture and, and kind of what is happening to prepare the way. Uh, this DVD series was a series I did last fall. Again, it's 18 videos, um, but it got such traction. It was so well received, we kind of put it together into a DVD set. But it's really the culmination of 15 years of going down the rabbit hole of what Satan is doing to kind of prepare the way for that final battle during the tribulation period between God and Satan. So the premise of the Spirit of the Antichrist DVD is from 1 John, which tells us the Antichrist is coming, capital A, but many Antichrists are already here, and the Spirit of Antichrist is already at work among us. And so uh, what I did was I said, what's, what are some characteristics of the Antichrist when he takes the control and kind of sets himself up as God and rules the world for seven years? What, are, what does the Bible say would be characteristic of him? And then I took those characteristics, overlaid them with our present age, because the Bible says that spirit's already at work, and I asked the question, do we see an uptick in some of those things happening? And so we get into some pretty edgy topics that you don't typically hear from a, you know, a dispensational Bible teaching pastor, but all through the lens of Scripture. So we talk about the Luciferian conspiracy, we talk about things like fake news and censorship. We talk about geoengineering, the Hegelian dialectic, uh, 
false flags, eugenics, uh, all kinds of uh, things that we read about that will be characteristic of that final seven-year tribulation and that we see beginning to kind of set the stage today. So that's uh, back there as well. And then uh, finally, the last thing I want to say about Not By Works is we do have a newsletter. And over the last year, we have been uh, basically banned from YouTube. Uh, they haven't taken the channel down yet, but I've got two strikes and three warnings. And so the handwriting is on the wall. So we've gotten completely away from YouTube, uh, as well as Facebook. And all of our stuff is now in-house at notbyworks.org. So the simplest way to get to all of our videos, we have tons of free videos and a, a, three podcasts a week that are free that you can listen to, audio, lots of articles that I put out regularly, one, at least one each week. The simplest way to stay in touch with all things Not By Works is by signing up for our newsletter. So in the past, if you've kind of been a YouTube junkie, you would, you would become a follower of our channel. And we had, you know, almost 2,000 people that were subscribers to our channel. Uh, but that's going away. We can no longer trust big tech. They like to censor the truth. Which, by the way, if you stop and think about it, why would you ever need to censor something unless you knew that your view was wrong? <laughs> If they felt like their view was right, then they should stand on its own four legs, right? But because they have no argument against the stuff that we're saying, they said, we're just going to censor you. So they take, they've taken on five of our videos so far, and they're about to ban us entirely. Uh, so, but the thing about Not By Works is whatever subjects we cover, we always give the gospel. I have a new series that we've had nine episodes of so far. It's a 10-minute video that comes out about every other week called Culture Shock in which I deal with kind of snatched from the headlines key issues of our day and address them from a conservative biblical perspective. But at the end of each one of those 10-minute videos, guess what you get? A brief presentation of the gospel. So um, in, in my heart of hearts, I wonder if that's not what really troubles YouTube, is that they don't like the gospel and they don't like the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the only hope for eternal life. But uh, whatever the reason, it doesn't matter because we've brought everything into notbyworks.org. So you see the website on the screen there. I would encourage you to, to sign up for our newsletter. You can do that by filling out this little card and giving it to me or Wendy, and we'll make sure we, you get added to our uh, newsletter list. And then uh, as far as Cornerstone Bible Institute, I wanted to give you a quick update there. We really covet your prayers at CBI. I know uh, Harrison Bible Church has been a longstanding a friend and supporter of CBI, uh, but these are exciting times and yet difficult times. We've lost some faculty, our student enrollment is down, uh, but we believe God is preparing the way for brighter days to come, and we're kind of sorting some things out. We've hired two phenomenal new faculty, uh, David Brewer and Adam Lair. David Brewer is going to be our language guy. I think he is the premier Greek and Hebrew uh, teacher in the country. He has an unbelievable track record teaching for eight other institutions, and he has a unique way of doing it. And so he and Beth, his wife, just started at CBI this month, and uh, we're really excited about that. He's also the vice president of academics. So lots of good things happening, but we covet your prayers. We need uh, two things besides your prayers. We need uh, finances, and we also need students. <laughs> so we encourage you to spread the word, uh, let people know that um, we'd love to, to talk to them about um, maybe uh, how CBI could help their children or their grandchildren. Uh, and along those lines, we've launched an online self-paced Bible study methods course that I'm teaching. And I've taught Bible study methods at the college and, and seminary levels for 15 years. 
And so, but this is completely self-paced. It comes with a 38-page study guide, 24 lessons that you can do, you know, one a week if you want, or one every couple of weeks, fully self-paced, study questions, textbooks, the whole deal. Uh, and we're doing it in partnership with CBI, so the good news is you'd get credit at CBI, and it's kind of a way to whet people's appetites about the kind of teaching they can get at a great institution like CBI. And uh, so if you're interested in that, you can certainly go to notbyworks.org and find out all about it, or certainly ask me or Wendy, and we'll tell you about it. But it, even though it's self-paced, it's got all the videos, it's got everything you need to go through the course, you, you're, I'm available as needed to, for questions and answers, to dialogue, we'll, I'll give you feedback on your assignments and those kinds of things. So that's all about uh, Cornerstone Bible Institute. We also have our catalog uh, at the back from CBI, if you're interested, it's always updated, so you know, get, list any of the new classes that we're offering and some of those kinds of things, so feel free to pick those up as well. Okay, enough with the commercials. You ready to talk about grace? All right, so we're calling this grace in the first place. Um, I don't think I have to tell this group that, of course, uh, it all begins with grace, and so that's why I chose the title Grace in the first place. And then, but it doesn't stop there, as we're going to see in our three messages this weekend. Uh, grace is part of the entire spiritual growth process. And it takes us all the way up to the moment, either at the Lord's return, at the rapture, or if we go the way of all flesh, when we see Him face to face someday. Grace is God's MO, you might say. You know, sometimes people mistakenly think that you know, the New Testament is about grace, the Old Testament is about law. That's not the right way to say that. God is immutable, and he's, uh, He never changes. His attributes are perfect. He never adds to His attributes, nor does He do any of His attitude, uh, attributes get better or decline or deteriorate. God is God. And God is first and foremost a God of grace. He was a God of grace in Genesis. He's a God of grace in Revelation. Um, what we see in God's self-revelation to mankind, the Bible, is that grace sort of jumps off the stage in high definition in the New Testament because of the, you know, the supreme event of human history, Calvary, which is relayed in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, grace was still there. We see it in every book of the Old Testament. But what we find in the New Testament is the culmination of God's plan of the ages with Christ, the Lamb of God, taking away the sin of the world at uh, the cross. So we want to start with uh, grace in the first place. Now you'll notice on the uh, screen there I chose a tape measure as the backdrop uh, for this message because people like to measure things, don't they? It's human nature. We all do it. We measure distances. You know, how far is it from point A to point B? I was talking to Pastor Matt yesterday as we were kind of coming up with a plan B for, with this snowstorm. Uh, and for a moment I had a brain freeze. I traveled so much I couldn't remember if it was three hours or 300 miles from Colorado Springs. Now you'd think I'd know. I only make this trip every month or so to come to, up to CBI. But I just couldn't remember. But I believe me, I do know. And uh, when we set out this morning or this afternoon, to come here, guess what we did? We looked at the distance in our uh, GPS. We want to know what's the quickest route uh, to take. Uh, we like to measure things. You know, how much snow did we get? That's the first thing I asked Pastor Matt. 
Um, how close was the race? Uh, you know, who's taller? Who's faster? Who's smarter? How high is that mountain? Who has a bigger house or car? Who has more money? How long was that sermon? No, no, we, we don't want to ask that. There's some things we don't, we don't, we're not allowed to measure. It's against God's word. Amen, right? Yep, it's in the Bible somewhere. Yeah. Um, but most of the time, that kind of measuring is, is innocuous. It doesn't hurt anything. But when it comes to our eternal destiny, measuring sticks definitely get in the way. You see, because of our propensity to measure, we tend to view heaven and hell through the lens of some arbitrary standard. We get our, out our behavioral yardstick, so to speak, and start sizing things up. Have I done enough? Am I good enough? Do I meet heaven's standard? But the problem is, heaven is not about measuring up. It's about what? Grace. Grace. A passage that we'll come back to again and again. I'm going to end up in Acts 9 tonight as our focal passage. But obviously, when you think about grace in God's Word, Ephesians 2, 8-9 rises to the top. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now the theme verse for our ministry, we're in our 22nd year now, is Titus 3.5, not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to His mercy He saved us. But in Greek, that's, that phrase, not by works, is the same exact Greek words in the same exact order as we see right here in Ephesians 2.9, not of works. It's literally not by works. It's all about grace. And grace, by definition, has no limits. It is immeasurable. So what do we mean when we say grace? Well, obviously it's the Greek word charis. So many of you have probably heard that before, I'm sure. It, in a lexicon, if you look it up, it means unmerited favor or blessing. It's used 155 times in the New Testament, and most of the time in the New King James anyway, which is what I'm teaching from at this conference. So all the verses you see on the screen, unless I say otherwise, are from the New King James. 128 of those 155 times that charis is used, it's translated grace. Sometimes you'll see it translated favor or benefit, but grace is undeserved blessing. It's undeserved blessing. Now, we could go all the way back to the garden to really begin to see what we mean by undeserved blessing. So if you remember how it all started, of course, God created man in his image, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and by the way, created a male and female um, in his image. And he gave us the garden. And because he loved us so much, he warned us about one particular tree not to uh, eat from, remember? And sometimes in over the 6,000 years of human history, we've sort of conditioned ourselves to think that God is... is is like this cosmic sheriff just tempting us to step over a line. Uh, but if you just let the text speak for itself, what you find out is that God, as I said, is first and foremost a God of grace and love and mercy. 
And the reason he gave the warning about the tree was not to be dangling some kind of a sick carrot. It's because he loved us. He, he wanted to protect us like any loving father would. You see, God didn't create a race of robots who had no choices. He gave us free will. And he said, you know, you can rebel against me. You can do what you want, but please don't, because in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely what? Die. So then, you know the rest of the story. Of course, we, we, we did eat from that tree. And at that moment, uh, God uh, really you know, could not have done what many people, it seems, if, if they think about it logically, wished he had. <laughs> because as I talk about in, in top ten reasons some people go to hell, one of the reasons, two of the reasons actually, are sort of uh, hurt and sorrow and then bitterness and anger uh, for whatever life circumstances where people shake their fist at heaven and say, why God? Well, the next time you hear someone ask, why is there so much suffering in the world? Why is there so much uh, hardship and, and tragedy and so forth? How could a loving God do that? You need to remind them that the world as it is today is not the world God created. God didn't create the world like that. We are the ones that messed it up. So you want to know why? Look in the mirror. But anyway, back to the garden. Uh, we rebelled against God of our own free will. And in that moment, God thankfully did not do what many people apparently think or wish that he would have, which is to then say to Adam and Eve, and by extension to us, ah, no big deal, don't worry about it, everybody makes mistakes, forget it. Uh, you know that death thing that I was talking about? I was just kidding, no problem. Just you know, He could have winked and nodded at our sin. But think about the implications of that for a moment, if you will. If God had done that, in that moment, he would have proven himself not to be God. He would have proven himself to be unfaithful, unreliable, fickle, and really even lying. Because God had said that in the day you eat of it, you'll die. So God, whose attributes are immutable, as we've already said, is a God of justice. And justice in that moment and God's trustworthiness were all at stake. And so, of course, what happened? Death entered the world. Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, by one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. So God did not do that, nor could He have done that, because He's God. But that's where grace comes in. Because, frankly, from the perspective of God's justice, it could have all been over right then. God could have said, I warned you. I grieve over what you've done. See you later. But he took the unbelievable next step to exercise his grace and his mercy and his love, didn't he? And he then began to prepare a way that we see all the way back in Genesis. We actually see it right there in Genesis 2 and 3. <laughs> we see it right there when uh, after Adam and Eve sinned and they were then aware of their nakedness, God did what? He provided a covering for them through the skins of animals. Now, think about what that means. This is the Garden of Eden, where up to that point there had been no death. No death. All of a sudden, you've got shed blood, two carcasses somewhere, 
I guess it was two. I don't know how many skins it took to cover Adam and Eve. But some carcasses somewhere, and a covering was made. And that's the very first inkling that we get of God's grace, of God saying, you know what, you got yourself into this predicament. I'm going to provide a way out. Then we see it again in Genesis 3.15, what theologians call the Proto-Evangelium, the first Proto-Evangelium gospel, first reference to the gospel, when God is talking to Satan and he says that the seed of the woman, in the New King James it's capitalized because it's a reference ultimately to the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. But he says the seed of the woman will crush you. It's going to defeat you, serpent. (laughs) So you may bruise his heel, you know, a reference to Satan trying to kill Christ. And remember what Jesus said about Satan. He's a murderer from the beginning. <laughs> why, do we, why, why is that? Well, it's true, of course, because Jesus said it, but it's also true because we see it exemplified in the Scripture. The first thing Satan does when he gets kicked out of heaven is to bring death. He knew that if Adam and Eve ate from the tree, they would die. So he is the father of death. He is the murderer from the beginning. And uh, he tried to kill Jesus when he was born uh, through Herod and, and killing all the babies two years and younger. He, he uh, indwelt Judas and got Judas to betray Jesus so he could kill him. And he did kill him. But of course, Jesus defeated death, hell, and the grave when he rose from the dead three days later. So in, back to Genesis 3.15, you know, he's going he's gonna to bruise you. He's going to, you know, kill you, but not permanently because you're God. But he, the son of God, the seed of the woman, is going to destroy you. And so from that point on, throughout the rest of Scripture, we see God's plan of the ages unfolding. And it is a plan predicated upon, built upon grace in the first place. If, 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 if God didn't, act in grace, if he acted only in justice, it would have all been over. Our Bible would have two chapters. Well, we probably wouldn't even have a Bible, (laughs) you know. Well, we wouldn't be here. I mean, where do you stop, right, when you really think about the implications of that? So grace begins in the garden, and it also begins in, in each of our lives at the moment we receive God's solution to our predicament. See, the thing about God's grace is He doesn't force it upon anyone. In the same way that God did not force Adam and Eve to eat the apple, we had free will, likewise He does not force anyone to be saved. Forced love is not love at all. So He provided the way, just as Scripture said He would. He makes salvation and forgiveness available to all but it's up to us to receive it. And that's the, the great evangelistic enterprise, and, and that's what it always puzzles me. when I think of, And that's why I wrote the, this book, when I think about why what, wouldn't somebody receive that free gift? Well, ultimately, we know it's because 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Satan is blinding men's hearts to the gospel. But grace is undeserved blessing. And when you go back to the beginning, you find it is undeserved right? It is undeserved. But it's easiest really to understand grace in the big picture when you compare it to its counterparts of justice and mercy. 
So before we get to our text, I want to take a moment to kind of define all three. So we said grace is undeserved blessing. Justice, by contrast, is getting what you deserve. Justice is getting exactly what you deserve. That's why sometimes you'll hear the phrase, justice is served. And when justice is not served, we feel that there has been something unfair. Right? There's an in, 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 inequity going on. There's an injustice. That's why we call it injustice. Right? Something that should have happened did not happen. Right? When the guilty get off scot-free, that's not justice. So justice is getting what you deserve. Again, grace is undeserved blessing. Justice is getting what you deserve. But don't forget mercy. Mercy is not getting punishment that you do deserve. Mercy is not getting punishment that you do deserve. So grace is a gift. It's a blessing. Grace is getting blessing that you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting punishment that you do deserve. See the difference? And justice is getting exactly what you deserve. So I've illustrated this uh, several different ways through the years, but uh, one, I think, helpful illustration is to think in terms of uh, uh, getting pulled over for speeding. And I'm sure that never happens to any of you saints, but uh, let's just pretend it does. Uh, So you get pulled over for speeding. Let's say you're exceeding uh, the speed limit. And, uh, you know, those lights come on behind you, you look at your speedometer and you know, I'm, I'm done for. You know, you're, you're supposed to be going 70, maybe you're going 78 or something. So you get pulled over and then, of course, at that moment, you begin doing what every God-fearing Christian does. You begin doing what? Praying. <laughs> and what are we praying for? We're praying for a warning, not a citation, right? So the officer comes up asks for your license and registration, and uh, and then they always take it back to the car and wait an inordinate amount of time. I swear they're just playing solitaire on their computers, Uh, but uh, whatever they're doing, it it takes way too long. So then they start that march back, and you're looking in your side mirror, and you see them coming, and then you really start praying. I mean, it's like white knuckles. Lord, please, I can't afford a ticket. All right, so here's the moment of truth. If they give you a citation, a speeding ticket, that's justice. You with me? You got what you deserve. You were speeding, you got to pay the piper. If they give you a warning, that's mercy, the withholding of what punishment you deserved. Right? You didn't get what you deserved. But if they pull out their wallet and hand you a $20 bill... That would be grace, getting a gift you don't deserve. See the difference? People confuse mercy and grace all the time. Now, by the way, I've never had a police officer uh, do that. Of course, as far as you know, I've never been pulled over for speeding. But, um, But that's the illustration. Mercy is not getting that ticket. Justice is getting the ticket. That's exactly what you deserve. Grace would be getting a gift that you don't deserve. That's grace. We need to understand grace. You know, grace is one of those words that everybody understands, right? Ask a stranger sometime on the street, uh, what's grace? You'll hear things like, oh, it's what you say before dinner. Or it's uh, what, you know, how you describe that ballet dancer. Boy, they were graceful, right? 
no, grace is a biblical word. We need to define biblical words with biblical meanings. And grace is undeserved blessing. It's an undeserved gift. Now, when you think about our eternal salvation, John 3.16 is a famous verse we all know. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but has everlasting life. And I don't know if you've ever realized this, but in that one verse, as it is with the entire moment of Calvary, we see justice, mercy, and grace all coalesce on a hill outside Jerusalem. How? Well, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That's justice. Blood had to be shed. Somebody had to die. Death had to occur. Why? Because God said, the wages of sin is death. So He could not just wink and nod. A sacrifice had to be made. Somebody had to die. Now, if you don't receive the free gift of eternal life by faith, as we're going to be talking about tonight and tomorrow, then you'll pay your own penalty. And justice will be served. Death, right? But somebody had to die. So for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That's justice. That whoever believes in Him, by the way, that's the only means by which we receive the gift. More than 160 times the new eternal life upon faith in Christ alone. Faith. That's the means of receiving the gift. So in a physical realm, a temporal realm, if I were to give Pastor Matt a present you know, and say, Happy birthday, you know, and I give him this present, he takes that present with his hands, right? That's the means of receiving it. It transfers from my hands to his. It's now his. He's, he's taken possession of it, right? Physically. That's how we receive gifts. Um, in a spiritual sense, Faith is like our hands. It's the means by which we receive eternal life. And the Bible tells us that 160 times. In uh, Getting the Gospel Wrong, I have an appendix that lists over 160 verses in the New Testament alone that condition the receiving of eternal life upon faith alone. So, for God's the world that He gave His only begotten Son, there's justice, that whoever believes in Him, so now we've received the gift by faith, believing in Him, and two things happen. I don't know if you've ever noticed this in John 3.16, but two things happen. The moment we trust in Christ, the moment we believe the gospel, two things happen. Number one, whoever believes in Him shall not perish. So what's that? That's mercy, right? Mercy, we, the withholding of punishment. We no longer have to pay the punishment in hell. <laughs> shall not perish. I don't get the ticket, Right? So justice was served because the Lamb of God took away the sins of the world. Death occurred, just like those animals were sacrificed in the garden to cover Adam and Eve. But, just, but uh, mercy also took place because instead of going to hell, because I've believed in Him, John 3.16, I shall not perish. I don't have to pay the ticket. I don't have to die. But the verse doesn't stop there. Shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That's grace. That's the gift. The gift is not only do I not have to spend eternity in a literal place of torment called hell, which would have been justice, but Jesus took the wrath of God upon Him in my place. That's the substitutionary atonement, died in my place. So not only do I have not have to go to hell, but I get that $20 bill, except it's way more than $20. It's an unbelievable gift. It's everlasting life. Jesus said, I come that you might have life and that more abundantly. Do you realize 
You get eternal life the moment you believe the gospel. You don't get eternal life when you die. That's what most of us tend to think. But no, eternal life is a present possession. It happens the moment you believe the gospel. In that instant, you are born again, regenerated, new life. It just so happens that that everlasting life that we now have, the first 20, 30, 50, 60, 80 years of it, are on the old earth. And then it will continue on in perpetuity in the new heavens and the new earth. But our eternal life begins right now. So you don't have to wait till you die to find out if you have eternal life. You can be sure right now. Have you done the one thing the Bible says you have to do to receive that gift of grace eternally? Have you believed the gospel? If you have, guess what? You shall never perish and you have everlasting life. That's the authority of Jesus himself in John 3, 16. So one more time, justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting punishment that you deserve. And grace is getting blessing that you don't deserve. So when we talk about undeserved blessing, we're talking about the immeasurable nature of God's grace. Why do we say it's immeasurable? Well, because it can never be too undeserved. See, by its nature, it's undeserved. And therefore, frankly, the more undeserving it is, the more powerful and valuable grace becomes. I mean, does it take more grace to save a person who is basically outwardly fairly moral and a general, genuinely nice person, but they've never, but they're a sinner because we're all sinners by nature? Or does it take more grace to save a mass murderer? I mean, grace is undeserved. The more undeserved it is, the more powerful it becomes. You know, people sometimes say, you know, I don't deserve grace. Well, you're right. <laughs> You're exactly right, dead on. If you deserved it, it wouldn't be grace. It would be what? Come on, work with me. If you got what you deserved, it would be what? Justice. Very good. So that's really the first step in understanding grace is that you don't deserve it. And throughout uh, Jesus' earthly ministry of three and a half years, you see all three of the synoptic writers uh, juxtaposing Jesus' interaction with the self-righteous, pious scribes and Pharisees within Israel versus, you know, those, uh, uh, you know, uh, dirty, rotten, filthy Gentiles, for example. Um, and so, and I, I walked up here without my Bible. Can you believe that? Um, I know if you're watching the live stream, I'll be right back. <laughs> That's very professional. This is, you know, top quality Universal Studios stuff here. But I forgot to grab my Bible. I do everything on my computer, but when I'm teaching, I frequently go off script, and I like to have my Bible. So turn with me real quickly to Matthew uh, chapter uh, 8. And I just want to point one thing out here. Because we see this again and again. Remember Jesus said, you know, I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. He said, you know, uh, it's not the healthy who need a, a doctor, it's the sick and so forth. Um, again and again you see him focusing on the people who think they're worthy, but they've never believed in him. 
versus those who are most definitely not worthy and know it, right? And so in Matthew, to set the context, in Matthew 5 through 7, that's what we call the Sermon on the Mount, and we have Jesus again and again rebuking the, the perception of the scribes and Pharisees who thought that they had dotted all their I's and crossed all their T's. And, and they thought that because they did everything by the book, you know, they prayed the long prayers, they had the huge phylacteries, they dressed right, they always clanged their money into the money bin, right? Uh, that they were going to be first in line to get into the kingdom. And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, first of all, shocks them right out of the bat with the Beatitudes by saying it's just the opposite of everything. you think. It's the poor in spirit, it's the weak, it's the humble. Whereas the Pharisees thought, no, no, it's the prideful and the, you know, the ones that have it together. But anyway, then he gets into sort of reinterpreting the law for them. Now, not reinterpreting it from what it's always been, but reinterpreting it from what the Pharisees had turned it into over the last 400 years, you know, since the last prophet. And he begins to say to them, you know, you think that, you know, you're great because you've never murdered. But let me ask you, have you hated? You're guilty. You think you're great because you've never committed adultery, but let me ask you, have you lusted? See where he's going? And he does this again and again, and he, he, several other things take place in the Sermon on the Mount, but he sort of ends it at the end of chapter 7 with those famous words, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, because you don't know me. You're behaving in a prideful, self-righteous way. But he, he says, by the way, in chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount, if you really want to get into the kingdom of heaven, you've got to be perfect. You've got to be perfect, Matthew 5, 48. And so it's not about, you know, grading on the curve or being better than most or dotting your I's or crossing your T's or being in the 99th percentile. It's about being perfect. And the only way to be perfect is to have Christ's perfection, Christ's perfect righteousness imputed is the biblical word or given, uh, reckoned to your account. It's like an accounting term. And how do you get that? By faith. So he ends the Sermon on the Mount, and the very next thing that we see Matthew record in chapter 8 is Jesus' encounter with none other than a Gentile, a centurion, who wants his servant to be healed. And notice what the centurion says in verse 8, Matthew 8, verse 8. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy. Bingo. I'm not worthy. See, that's grace. It's undeserved blessing. And by the way, then Jesus commends his faith in verse 11 or verse 10 when he says, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. So, I mean, just imagine how that went over. He spends, you know, a whole sermon on the hillside rebuking the self-righteous Pharisees and then turns around and commends with great faith uh, a Gentile. But that's because it begins by recognizing your unworthiness. So what I want you to see is that grace is immeasurable, all right? That, you know, as Paul says, speaking of believers, where sin increased, grace increases all the more. In other words, you cannot out-sin God's grace. Sin can never go so far that God's grace cannot reach it because it's undeserved to begin with. You can never get so lost in sin that grace... I cannot find you. Paul put it this way in Romans 3.24, we are justified freely by His grace. Freely. 
You know, we've gotten to where we don't like that word free, do we, in Christian circles today. It makes us uncomfortable because human nature is such that we feel like we have to bring something to the table. We've got to put something in the game. We've got to do our part. It's as if we think that eternal salvation is a bilateral contract between us and God. And what we need to understand is it is totally, absolutely free. I like to say that a lot because it always makes certain people, some people squirm in their seats. Oh, it can't be you know, free. That's just, that's too cheap. No, it's totally free. Oh, come on. That, 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 that cheapens grace. Nope, it doesn't. It makes it more expensive. <laughs> makes it more expensive. It's more valuable. So you don't have to do anything except the one thing the Bible tells you to do 160 times, which is believe. You don't have to promise. You don't have to pledge. You don't have to turn. You don't have to stop. You don't have to start. You don't have to forsake. You don't have to commit. You don't have to surrender. You don't have to make Him Lord. There's nothing you can do to measure up. That's Jesus' whole point. You've got to be perfect. So you can sit here at the bargaining table all day and say, Lord, I'll never do this. I'll start doing this. I'll turn away from that. I'll promise to do this. I'll pledge to do this. I'll forsake that. I'll commit to you to do this. I'll make you Lord of my life. I'll put you on the throne of my life. And he's sitting there saying, sorry, nothing I can do. Until he hears you say, you know what, Lord, there's nothing. I'm unworthy. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. And then he goes, bingo. Because it's not a bilateral contract. It's a unilateral gift. We come to the Lord. He says, you recognize you're a sinner. You need a Savior. That You trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for your sins and is the only one who can save you. And when you believe that, in that instant, you pass from death to life and shall never come into judgment. Jesus tells us that in John 5, 24. But it's free. It's totally free. It has to be. In fact, the Bible ends with that great call, whosoever will let him come drink of the water of life, what? Freely. Freely. In him, Paul says, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And the more undeserving it is, the more rich his grace is. (laughs) That in the ages to come, he goes on to say in chapter 2, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And many people have have an unwitting or maybe unaware, uh, unrealized pharisaical attitude when they're, you know, somehow feeling like they've contributed something. And it's that incipient pride that causes us to look at other people and say, well, look at the sins they're committing, you know, the biggies drugs and sex and all that stuff, and oh, they could never be in heaven. And yet all the while, we know in our heart, there's still sins that we're struggling with every day. Jealousy, you know, uh, covetousness, pride, lust, you name anger, right? A lot of the fruit of the flesh listed there in Galatians 5. So the, the perfect illustration of, of this moment when grace takes root in our lives is from Acts chapter 9 and the story of Saul. You know, the very guy who proclaimed emphatically that our eternal destiny is not based upon works but grace and wrote many of those verses that I've just been showing you was Paul. And Paul knew a thing or two about grace, didn't he? 
And he knew how immeasurable it was. You remember the story of Saul, who became Paul? He was a, a, a murderer of Christians and a hater of Christ. And yet, he's the same one who would later write, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, including him. He, he understood grace. So if Saul's story teaches us anything, it's that you're never too bad for grace. You're never too far from grace. You're never too far gone. You're never too hopeless. You're never too estranged. You're never too evil. You're never too sinful. You're never too broken or hurt or damaged or ruined or beyond redemption. Grace abounds. And so as I see the story of Paul's conversion recounted there in Acts 9, I see three things that jump off the page that can never overpower grace. Number one, your past can never overpower grace. Your past can never overpower grace. Saul's past was well known. Like I said, he was a Christ hater and a Christian killer. In Acts chapter 8, verse 3, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Oh, there's no way that guy could ever get saved. That's grace, undeserved blessing. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Don't you know that verse? Of course, he wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit. We understand that. But don't you know that that had to just have special meaning to a guy like Paul? But you know what? It should have a special meaning to all of us. You may not have been a murderer or a Christ hater, but whatever your past, it's in the past. <laughs> Old things have passed away. Isaiah the prophet told the nation of Israel, do not remember the former things. You know, the nation of Israel is sort of a you know, phenomenal metaphor for individual spiritual life because you think about the ups and downs of Israel's history. Times when they were godly nation for serving God, following Him faithfully in times when they were as far away from God as you could possibly imagine. You know, someday, and we're going to talk about this tomorrow morning in the worship hour, Christ is going to sit on the throne and make all things new. So your past is not relevant. I mean, it's relevant in terms of daily living, in terms of practicalities, in terms of lessons of life, and the Bible talks about that. The ear that hears the rebukes of life will abide among the wise, Proverbs 15, 31. But in terms of heaven or hell and our eternal destiny, not relevant. Your past can never overpower grace. See, God's not in the business of scrutinizing your past. He's in the business of making all things new. They, uh, there was a Christian group when I was in, younger in, in uh, seminary that came out with a song and, and the lyrics every now and then pop into my mind. Let me introduce you to a friend called Grace. Doesn't care about your past or your many mistakes. He'll cover your sins in a warm embrace. Let me introduce you to a friend called Grace. 
So grace, your past can never overpower grace, but your present can never overpower grace either. Uh, your present is no match for grace. Luke tells us that the very day Saul met Jesus, he was still breathing out threats and murder against Christians. Acts 9.1, right off the bat. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. See, God meets you where you are. He doesn't require you to change or turn around or stop sinning or promise to stop sinning or pledge to stop sinning or be willing to stop sinning. He doesn't ask you to get cleaned up before He gives you a bath. You know, you know it's been a long time. We have six kids. It's been a long time since our kids were young enough to give them baths, but we have a grandbaby uh, living with us. Oh, I'm glad you asked. My granddaughter, yes, I'll be happy to show you pictures at the break. Uh, but it's so neat to see her mom, our daughter, uh, say, okay, Zoe, time to go get a bath. You know, I've never heard her say, all right, Zoe, let's get you all cleaned up so we can go give you a bath. That would be silly. You don't get cleaned up to take a bath. You come just as you are. And if a murderous, Christ-hating thug can get saved, anyone can get saved. Your present can never overpower Christ, uh, overpower grace. Paul said in his first letter to Timothy, this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. So he understood his past, and he understood his present, but he also understood grace. And grace wins every time. Christ didn't come to save perfect people or even good people or even people who are bad but trying hard. He came to save sinners, plain and simple. But finally, your future, likewise, can never overpower grace. Grace is greater than all our sins. I heard that somewhere tonight. It's, you know, from the perspective of Calvary, how many of your sins were yet future? All of them. So why is it that we think somehow because I've trusted in Christ and Him alone for salvation, all of my past sins are forgiven, but somehow something I might do in the future that grieves the Holy Spirit or is a sin against the Holy God can undo the promise of God who said, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. See, Jesus didn't say in John 10, 28, I give you the prospect of eternal life or the possibility of eternal life or the potential for eternal life. He said, I give you eternal life. And either he meant what he said or he didn't. So at the moment you placed your faith in him, you got, as I said earlier, the present possession of eternal life. And if it's eternal, that means by definition it can never be lost. If you go back to the story of Saul, Saul was planning in the future to continue his murderous ways. This was uh, premeditated. He had, he had asked letters from him, meaning the high priest, to the synagogues of Damascus. So if he found any who were of the way, that is any believers there, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Paul had his future all, Saul rather, had his future all mapped out. But grace is greater than that. 
Your future can never overpower God's grace. The timeless God of eternity can intervene in your future plans and turn them on a dime anytime He wants. And that's exactly what happened in Saul's life. Uh, Wendy and I met a lady years ago at a conference that we were doing in uh, Washington, D.C., and uh, she had been a member of this church. It was a larger church that we were speaking at. She'd been a member there, as I recall, for 20 years, raised her kids there. But she came up after one of my messages, and, and she was looking at the gospel tracts that we have on the table, and she picked up some, and she began to tell an unbelievable story that illustrates how your future can never overpower God's grace. When she was younger, uh, she uh, was going through a rough time. I don't remember all of the details. I'm not even sure she shared all the details, but she had come to the end of her rope, and she decided to end it all. And so she woke up one day and decided she was going to jump in front of a subway and kill herself. So she got on the subway, was waiting to get off at the right stop where she could just end it all. And she, while she was kind of riding the subway, waiting for that moment, she looked down and on the seat beside her was a gospel track that somebody had left there. And she picked it up, began to read it. The Spirit of God began to do a work in her life, convicting her of sin, righteousness, and judgment. She trusted Christ in that moment, got off the subway, and never looked back. Became a God-fearing, Bible-believing Christian, raised her children in the church. Her plan for her future was to end it all, and had she succeeded, she would have spent eternity in a literal place of torment called hell. But God's grace was bigger than that, and God intervened. See, some people think they have to have the future all in order before they come to faith in Christ. You know, what if I mess up later? You know, if they, they've become so conditioned to think that salvation is somehow a bargaining arrangement and they don't think, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm gonna, I might get saved someday, but I'm going to make sure I'm good and ready. I'm going to make sure I really mean business with the Lord. I've heard that phrase a lot. Well, you're going to be waiting a long time until you can mean enough business with the Lord or bring enough to the bargaining table for Him to say, okay, you're the one exception. <laughs> nope, it's about grace. It doesn't matter. You don't have to have a firm commitment because salvation isn't a commitment. It's not a commitment. Um, you know, I, I taught... Uh, at a, in a formal institution for 12 years full-time, six at a college and six at a seminary. And when I was at the college, we had a lot of students who were, you know, in their 40s, 50s. They were pastors. And they were going back to college to get their degree so they could go on to seminary. But they were already serving in the church. And Monday classes were always exciting because they'd come back from weekend services and tell us about how things went at their church service. And inevitably, somebody would come to class and say, hey, Doc, man, you, you'd loved our church service Sunday. We had six people commit their lives to Christ. And I would look right back at them and say, man, that's awesome. Did any of them get saved? <laughs> you do not get saved by committing your life to Christ. The Bible never uses that language anywhere. Look it up. Salvation is not a commitment that we bring to the Lord. Salvation is nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling, otherwise known as grace. It's a free gift. It's not about what we commit to Him. It's about what we get from Him. He paid it all. Jesus paid it all. He didn't just pay, pay most of it. He paid it all. So your future can never 
overpower God's grace. We're kept by the power of God through faith, ready for that ultimate salvation that will be revealed in the last days. I'll finish with the words of Paul himself from Romans 8. I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace in the first place. It begins with grace. Your past can never overpower grace. Your present can never overpower grace. Your future can never overpower grace. So what's the takeaway? Well, you know, put away your measuring stick, first of all. If you're not a believer and you've, by God's providence, made it here today, I don't know everyone, then the first thing you need to do is receive God's grace. You need to, by faith, trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again for your sins. He's the only one that paid your price, and He's the only one that defeated death, hell, and the grave and purchased with His own blood eternal life, which He then freely offers to whosoever will that comes. So receive it by faith. For those of you that already know the Lord as a believer, I would say rest in God's grace. As we're going to see tomorrow morning in, in, in the first session when I talk about grace for the race, I think I told you it was going to be grace during the race, but as I put the finishing touches on it, I changed it to grace for the race. But uh, it takes grace every day. It's God's sustaining grace to live for Him. This is a tough world we live in, isn't it? But God's grace is sufficient. And then we'll finish up uh, in the second hour tomorrow with grace face to face with a glimpse at heaven. A glimpse at heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, great church and these great folks. And thank you for the privilege of being able to share some time with them tonight and tomorrow. I pray that your word would not return void and that it would just be encouraging and convicting and, and just help reintroduce us to this amazing subject of grace that is so misunderstood and so often uh, confused, but so important in our Christian lives. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.